Chapter 1. The Lie. My Work is Who I Am. Ironically, the low point in my professional career was when I had the highest paying job and the most significant title I'd ever had. I was the head of sales at the Walt Disney Company's movie studio. In the simplest terms, as president of distribution, I sold movies to theaters. I'd been doing this for seven years of a 17-year Disney career, and we were on a run. I don't mean we had some hit movies. I mean, we had all the hit movies. We set every record. How could we not? I came into the job on the heels of the company's acquisition of Pixar, and not long after settling in, we acquired Marvel Studios, and then Lucasfilm. In what will likely be regarded a hundred years from now as the beginning of the golden age for any movie studio ever, the collection of Disney's live-action films like Beauty and the Beast and Jungle Book, and animated films like Frozen and Zootopia, combined with the superhuman consistency from Pixar, Toy Story 3, Inside Out, the unprecedented Marvel run, roughly $10 billion in box office earnings during my time, and the phenomenon of Lucasfilm, all things Star Wars, came together to make box office history. While I was distribution chief, we had the biggest year in the history of the business, and followed that with the second biggest year ever. We released nine of the ten most successful opening weekends ever. We had the biggest overseas numbers. We established our brands as the most prolific in entertainment, and in doing so, built something unlike anything the movie industry had seen up to that point. I had the best team in the business, by a stretch. I was surrounded by the most incredible leadership team I'd ever worked with, and was reporting to people whom I not only respected, but who created an environment that people genuinely loved working in. Being involved with these epic brands also meant getting to collaborate with some of the greatest storytellers to work in this business. The talented actors who brought these roles to life, they were part of the mix too, going from people you dreamed of meeting one day to people you were picking up a past conversation with the next time you were at a premiere together. All of it came with romantic notions of Hollywood and the red carpets and the after parties and yet it was the low point of your professional career, you may be asking? Are you playing the world's smallest violin yet? Do you need your head examined? Well, yes, probably. But I can see clearly now that this lie that my work is who I am was keeping me from becoming who I was meant to be. How in the world is that possible? It turns out, that selling the Avengers and Star Wars to movie theaters isn't that hard. You don't need to fully understand the economics of how movie theaters work to appreciate that they need big movies to stay in business. So when you're the sales guy, asking them to take your movie at a certain rate, there's a little less effort required than, say, my predecessor had to put in to sell Wild Hogs. Now, that's no dig on John Travolta, Martin Lawrence, and Tim Allen on dang motorcycles. And yes, I'll watch anything where Ray Liotta is a bad guy. 
but the effort required to get a good deal for a movie about the midlife crisis version of Sons of Anarchy is wildly different than asking those same theaters to take The Force Awakens. There was the crux of my unfulfillment. I was getting straight-A grades and didn't need to study. As the slate continued to grow and the teams hit their stride, turning out hits became more common, and the fleeting effort required to make a sale left me feeling something that, for the longest time, I couldn't put my finger on. I got the biggest bonuses of my life, the most recognition of my career, and was the envy of others who'd worked harder to do a similar job at other studios, and yet, because of that contrast, I was miserable. I'm sure there's a part of you that wants to punch me in my miserable face. What kind of high-class problems are you whining about, Dave? I get it. But here's the thing. If you find yourself staying in a job that you've had because it's become your identity, or you're worried that pushing yourself into something that challenges you but requires shedding parts of that identity might not be received well by others, we've got plenty in common. I let the value others placed on my job or my title influence how I felt about myself, how present I was or felt like I needed to be at home, and more importantly, how I pushed myself to fully use the potential I'd been given to show up for my life. In my professional life, I've been an assistant, coordinator, publicist, tour manager, producer, rep, varying levels of vice president, president, and now CEO. I have had all those titles over 25 years that I've been working, and even though they described the level of work I was doing, they didn't describe who I was. They didn't give me my value. At the time, I believed that they did, but believing it suggested that without the title, I was inherently less. That if I didn't have the right title or get promoted fast enough, I wasn't as good a person, or I wasn't able to contribute to society, or as capable of measuring up to the person I hoped to be. Yes, I was proud of my ability to move from one level to the next, but allowing my title and my worth in society to become so connected in my mind, I gave away my power to own my self-worth. This truth, this uncoupling of what I did professionally with who I am as a person, has created a long-wished-for freedom from the worry of what other people think. And it has given me a forced focus on the reality I struggle to see or believe at times. I can be a good man, regardless of where I work. But where I work and what I do does not in and of itself make me a good man. I can provide for my family in ways that make sense to me, but as I find ways professionally to provide, becoming more successful doesn't mean I'm justified in doing less at home as a husband and father. I can earn respect regardless of job title, and sometimes it turns out by abandoning that identity. It's on me, not my employer, to push me into places that help me grow. I am deserving of love regardless of what my business card says. I am enough before the commute begins. But even when we hear or read truths like these, sometimes it is still hard to believe them and replace the lies we've held on to for so long. Why is that? 
When you think back to when you were a kid, which one of your parents did you crave love from most? And who did you have to be to get it? That was the welcome mat on the first day of that life-changing experience at my first personal development conference. I'd never given it much thought. I'm sure most of us haven't. How we behave, both consciously and unconsciously, has roots that go back to our earliest memories as children and the kind of people we needed to be to get the reaction we were hoping for. The reaction most of us hope for is love, attention, affection, security, or some combination of these things. And the action we take to get it when we're five years old turns out to be the same one we use when we're 10 and 20 and in the midst of a midlife crisis. From my earliest memories, achievement was one of the things I associated with love. If I could collect the most trophies and lead the most social clubs and get selected for the honor society and make the sports teams and recite the Bible verses and get the good job, I'd get the pat on the back, the we're so proud of you hug I craved. Those achievements were my road to love. And like so many others, I chased all the things to try and get it. In hindsight, it's not like my parents really cared that much whether I got the best grades or had an extra sash on my graduation gown. But the reality I'd created in my mind, that achievement equaled love, drove so many of the decisions I made in every aspect of my life. This pursuit of achievement drove me to jump from job to job inside the entertainment industry each new job a new chance to show my parents and friends and peers that I was worthy of their notice. Love me, not because of who I am behind this job title, but because of this job title. Yep, it motivated me plenty, but dang is that an unhealthy way to go through life. It's not like I knew it at the time. Heck, before I'd spent some time considering why I do what I do, it never really occurred to me to try and map out the things I had experienced in my life to better understand how those moments shaped me. Until I started digging into personal development and sat in therapy and did some work, I believed the illusion that I was in control of my actions. That's not to say that getting to a place where you're in more control isn't possible, but I came to realize that until you're able to better understand why you do the things you do, it's more likely that unconscious habits will kick in when life sneaks up around the corner and kicks you in the shin. This lie, that my work is who I am, has shown up time and time again since my very first job. This book isn't long enough, nor the stories interesting enough, to go through all of them. So instead, let me give you three times during my journey at Disney when this phenomenon presented itself. Once at the beginning, once in the middle, and once at the end. The Beginning Early on at Disney, I was placed into a job where I felt insecure about being the best fit. Only a couple of years in, I held a role where other candidates were more qualified and I created a narrative in my head that everyone else in the organization was questioning my readiness and worthiness for the opportunity. 
I recognize now that I was projecting my own insecurities onto these people I was sure were judging me, but that's not what it felt like at the time. I worried constantly about being exposed as unqualified, and I had this crazy certainty that others were critical of my every move. I knew logically that being insecure didn't serve me. That logic, though, was challenged by the ridiculous worry of a little boy from years earlier whose subconscious thoughts still found a way to voice lies. The name-calling from fourth grade wouldn't give way to the accomplishments of this grown adult. As much as you think it's you against the world, in these moments when you try to break away from the insecurities of your past, it truly ends up being you against yourself. I was fortunate to have good coaches. The mistakes that came from listening to those voices of insecurity allowed those who cared for my development to shine a light into this area. That allowed me to be present in a way that was better for my teams, the bosses I was serving, and ultimately, my personal brand. It was during this early, bigger-than-I-was-ready-for-job transition that a mentor dropped one of the best pieces of advice I've ever received. Because I was worried that I'd be revealed as being in over my head at the time, whenever I found myself in a meeting and there was the slightest pause, I'd insert something that sounded smart, or at least sounded smart in my mind, so I could show the room how truly qualified I was for the role that I'd been given. Whatever that spark of brilliance was in the moment, it didn't necessarily have anything to do with my new role, or even the subject being discussed in the meeting. But boy, did I think it was showing everyone how wrong they were to question my ability to do this new job. After one particularly transparent showcase of my insecurities where I inserted every wise observation I could think of, my boss asked me to come to his office for a quick chat. As we walked down the hall, I wondered if I would get the traditional high-five, or if this would be one of those times when we went all the way with a high 10. Was he going to give me a special certificate for my contributions that went above and beyond in a meeting? Would there be a statue unveiled of me delivering so much wisdom that we'd now memorialize that meeting for all time in bronze? We walked into his office, the door closed, and he very calmly turned around and said four words that pierced my baby's soul. Shut the f*** up. It was like the end of the Mortal Kombat video game I played as a kid. Finish him. Fatality. It was gutting. This person whose opinion I cared so much about and who I wanted so badly to think I was doing a good job just kneecapped me. He went on, You're doing a great job. You are the best person for this role, and I wouldn't have put you there if that weren't the case. Stop worrying about what anyone thinks and prove that you can do this with your results. Oh, okay. That sounds good. It turns out every time I opened my mouth in this attempt to prove my worthiness, I was taking a step in the opposite direction. The advice served me well and was the beginning of a journey that had me taking new opportunities, making new mistakes, 
and finding in a mentor a mirror that could be held up to keep me accountable. Ultimately, that would help me find better ways to stay out of my own way. I became more comfortable owning the spaces I didn't understand, yielded more and more to experience when it appeared, and made a pivot from achievement being about my personal accomplishments to being about my ability to team build and problem solve by committee. The middle. Fast forward a decade to when I was given the opportunity to run international theatrical distribution. It was a far bigger role than my resume would have qualified me for, but it was a training ground that in four or five years could make me a candidate to take the role of head of global distribution. I grabbed my passport and got to work. But then, after only about nine months, due to a string of circumstances that can only be described as a mix of hard work, good timing, serendipity, and providence, I was thrust into the global head sales job. The first three years were incredible, in large part because they were the most challenging. I walked into rooms where I was the least experienced person on an almost hourly basis and asked unbelievably dumb questions, did my best to listen, and was the beneficiary of the grace of teams who were willing to put up with my ignorance and teach me well. Some did it despite knowing that they would have been better candidates for my job. Most did it while stifling an eye roll. Still, I had the job and the responsibility that came with it. In another layer of this lie of believing my work equaled my identity, I hoped my appointment to this role would affirm my inherent value and would, therefore, afford me the same kind of influence my predecessor had been afforded, a faith in my perspective, or at a minimum, a willingness to give me the benefit of the doubt. I couldn't have been more wrong. I got a preview of how hard those first years would be when we needed to pick an opening weekend on the calendar for one of our upcoming movies. In the film business, talent of a certain caliber had contractual consultation rights when their movies should come out. So in one of the final training wheels moments before I assumed my new role, my predecessor, Chuck, had me lead his last meeting where we pitched Donnie Depp's team the rationale behind the date for his next blockbuster with us. I studied all night, and I came ready to wow this assembled crowd with my knowledge of the calendar and the history of the movie business and the reasons this date on the weekend that we'd picked would be better than any other date. I walked into the room and sat across from Johnny's lawyer and agent and manager and publicist and sister, the crew you had to convince. I knew them by reputation or photos on a red carpet, but hadn't met them. Chuck, on the other hand, was embraced by each as they played a game of inside jokes and talks of the next time they'd golf together. I slayed the meeting. I gave the most eloquent and compelling eight minutes of discourse on the reasons this date was the most perfect in all the land. I did it barely using notes, and didn't need the help of my more experienced and familiar-to-them predecessor. I did all but land the plane with jazz hands. I was so proud of my articulate explanation. When I finished, I looked across the table and saw zero nonverbal cues. They looked like cyborgs. 
They did not smile or nod or stand up and applaud. They just sat there with blank stares on their faces. After a dramatically long pause, the elder statesman in the room drew his gaze to my right and in a deep, calm voice said, Chuck, what do you think? Chuck smiled wryly under his classic mustache and said, Well, in my business, this is a good date. And to a person, the entire room in unison said, Sounds good. The trust they'd built in Chuck over a couple decades of these meetings trumped every single part of my smooth delivery. I was mortified. I was frustrated. What did this say about who I was if the people I was tasked with getting on board didn't see the authority of my position, and therefore, the value in me and my recommendations? It said exactly what you think it did. I hadn't earned their immediate nods. It was an important hazing I needed to go through. It would take years of relationship building and expertise gathering before I got my version of sounds good from a room of people with contractual consultation rights. But this initial meeting humbled me and forced me to remember the fact that my job title did not equal my personal value, nor did it mean that other people would automatically accept all my ideas. In those early years in this role, I had to constantly remind myself that it wasn't a title or role that defined my ability to deliver value. It was my effort, my creativity in turning my inexperience into a fresh eyes asset. Outside of the office, my identity was not dependent on the work I did. To the people who really mattered, this was the least important consideration. Once I was able to clearly see these truths, I was able to come back with a healthier mindset and a fire in my belly to run faster and work harder, this time for the purpose of stewarding my job well, rather than to feel better about myself or my worthiness in the role. Those first three years as sales head were full of humbling learning experiences where my bosses and teams held my hand through teachable moments. I grew as the strength of the film slate grew, and in what now feels like the blink of an eye, the drinking from a fire hydrant start turned into a drinking from a water fountain experience as I got the hang of things. The End Being great at what you do is the goal, isn't it? In my last two years working at Disney, the records we were setting and the deals we were striking really were things to celebrate. I knew what I was doing, had the team and the films to fudge the rest, and got to a place where I was good at my job. Really good. Best run in history, envy of the industry kind of good. But the affirmation and adoration that was coming from the outside was so mismatched with the sense of dissatisfaction I was feeling on the inside. Why was I so much happier when the job was a struggle and so miserable when the going got good. In the last two years of having the job of everyone else's dreams, I put the responsibility for my unfulfillment on other people. It was Disney's fault for not giving me a bigger challenge, my boss's fault for not listening to my requests for more responsibility, 
HR's fault for not advocating for me in new spaces with other business leads. It was my colleague's fault for attempting to convince me that my feelings would be quieted in time. My industry's fault for assigning value to the role. My parents' fault for praising my accomplishments. My family's fault for needing the compensation that came from it. I couldn't grow because of other people. I couldn't leave because of other people. Other people. I resented that they weren't doing more to fix my feelings. Ridiculous. It took me forever to realize that it was on me to fix this. To unwind this lie that kept my profession so integrally connected to my identity. I am responsible for finding fulfillment in my job. For being happy with what I do. For knowing my value regardless of my title. The company I work for. The salary I make. Or the way anyone looks at all of it. It took falling into a darker place to get the push I needed to address this more fully. I had to find the motivation to chase growth from within rather than relying on anything external. It came down to intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation. I came to appreciate that you and you alone have to feel the call on your heart to grow and pursue a life that's better than the one you already have even as it means shedding the identity you've become comfortable with in the office. If you can't let go of that identity you've allowed to become intertwined with your job in order to chase true happiness and fulfillment, if you don't take responsibility for yourself and the significant steps needed to get there, you'll likely stay stuck. And it's not worth it. It's not worth it to cling to a false identity and sacrifice the more your life could be. Pray for the wisdom to understand your potential and for the strength, will, and drive to do the work required to bring those gifts to the world in a way that disconnects your job title from your ability to deliver impact. Though it took time and some bumpy roads along the way, this was the answer I'd been looking for. And once I was able to push past the fear and debunk the lies holding me back, it unlocked everything. And what many saw as a crazy move, I quit. I left a great job full of security, opting out of a guaranteed multi-million dollar annual salary and a position full of clout and prestige. I walked away to chase dreams with my wife. In a leap of faith, before her big book sold a single copy, we made the decision to move our family from L.A. to a small town just south of Austin, Texas. Since making our move, I've grown more confident in who I am. And as much as my job is a component of who I am, I've found happiness in letting my actions as a supportive husband, involved father, and active ally for causes we believe in do the work in establishing my identity. The truth that counters the lie that I am defined by my job? I am defined by my impact. Impact is agnostic to job title. Impact can come irrespective of the name of your company. There's freedom in untangling what you do from who you are. Once you know your why, you can find fulfillment in being challenged to chase it, no matter what your business card says.
Things that helped me. 1. I redefined how I measured success in my work. I'd been using a measuring stick that was more about what other people thought than how my potential was being used or how passionate I was about the work. But I shifted my focus to what really matters when it comes to work. Impact matters. Waking up on fire for the work matters. Feeling alive and whole while doing the work matters. Providing for your family can happen either way. In places where you aren't challenged or fueled, and in places where it feels like a calling with maximum opportunity to use your gifts for others. Choosing to focus on the latter has made all the difference. 2. I accepted responsibility for my career growth. For too many years, I sat stuck in a rut that I believed was caused by someone or something else. After having been the fortunate beneficiary of growth that I didn't have to drive myself, I didn't have the muscle memory to catalyze my own opportunities when things slowed. It wasn't until I took full responsibility for the work that only I could do to push myself that I started to see my skills tested in new, less comfortable ways that produced the growth I'd been missing. 3. I worried first about my reputation as a human in the workplace. When I felt myself descending because of the grip my career had on me and my identity, I made a conscious choice to advocate for others and be an ally. My voice as a leader of teams, the role I played as a mentor, the opportunities I chased with work-based philanthropy or my willingness to join a task force, all afforded a connection and value delivery that transformed how I felt about my work, as much as it had a nice side benefit of building my personal brand.